Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not going to talk about COVID. We're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. Welcome to the Reverse Plenary Session. My name's Emma Greenstreet. I'm a second year medical student at UCSF, and I'll be your host today. And today I'm joined with my guest and typical host of the Plenary Session, Vinay Prasad. Thank you so much for having me. Today we have some questions from a medical student, and these questions were made in collaboration with one of my UCSF classmates, Jeremy Sue. So the first question I wanted to start off asking was really how did you choose your specialty or how did you end up picking hemonc? Back when I trained we had graded step one scores and that all set me back. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a, that was the first error. No, um, so that's a good question. I guess um, the answer to that is it's always two parts for those of us who do internal medicine subspecialties. Uh, the first question is you know what made you choose internal medicine because that's where I went initially and I guess the answer to that question is I really tried to explore a lot of different options when I was a student. I think as a second year student and a third year student, I didn't have a clear preconceived notion of what I wanted to do in terms of specialty. I started by kind of keeping an open in mind and I did my medicine clerkship first and I really enjoyed it. We had great instructors who taught us about the principles of evidence-based medicine. They just really had a sort of a world-class curriculum put together with Scott Stern and Diane Alcorn and Adam Sifu, um, who have been to at least two of the three have been guests of this podcast. Um, and then I got interested in medicine. I, I liked it a fair bit, um, but I still wanted to see what else was out there. And so I went into my peds rotation with an open mind, my surgery rotation with an open mind, uh, my OB-GYN rotation, maybe less of, an, less of an open mind, but I went into it nonetheless, and they, they shut that door real quick. Um, and what did I discover? I discovered that there were many parts of surgery that I liked, um, but there were some parts I didn't and some of the culture I didn't and I wasn't sure if I Wanted to be doing surgery day in and day out many years down the road And I think if you're you're either all in it and if you're not all in it Then it's best to bow out early rather than as many of my colleagues did kind of the hard way after doing a couple years And then maybe even dropping out um, I thought about radonc. I did a rotation on radonc and I kind of enjoyed it and No offense to the many radonc listeners. I love you all but um one of the things that made it tough for me was um, it felt a little solitary. Um, there was a lot of hours of the day that we were spending sort of uh, looking through CT scans and shading in tumor volumes for radiation planning, and I found that to be kind of tedious and, and, and kind, of, kind of slow. And so I was a little bit, I, I was a little bit turned off. Um, and then ultimately I am, I felt like it left me a few options. I still was kind of undecided. I thought maybe, maybe I'd be interested in cardiology. Um, 
maybe electrophysiology. I always liked reading EKGs. Um, I also thought maybe palm critical care. I really enjoyed my ICU rotations as a student. And oncology was maybe on the back burner. I don't think I really thought of it. Um, and I went into internal medicine that way. And I think the other thing that kind of relates to maybe some of what we're going to talk about is I think I was um, probably thinking I was going to be a private practice doctor at this time because I was I had never done or I had tried to do laboratory research and I had strongly disliked it <laughs> on multiple occasions and I knew I didn't want to do it and I don't think I really had an understanding that you could do any other type of research in the academy and so I was leaning and I enjoyed clinical care so I was leaning towards private practice so that's how I got into internal medicine I stayed at Northwestern in the city of Chicago I stayed in the city um, and then how did I do oncology back when I trained you had to apply at the end of your intern year there wasn't a lot of time and throughout my intern year I did a couple months I think of the CCU cardiology I did um, I think an elective in EP uh, I did palm critical care which I really liked and I did a couple months of hematology oncology and I would say that it was just a couple of attendings people who I ended up going back and asking for letters of recommendation and I really connected with them on on hemonc and I felt like so often is the case part of why you're drawn to the specialty is the problems part of why you're drawn to it is the patients and part of why you're drawn to it is the personalities of the faculty you work with and I happen to work with some faculty that left an impression on me and so I think ultimately it came down to this I had done one year and I was thinking about how many more years I wanted to do. This is something that came up in a recent conversation I had. And I knew I wasn't gonna do eight years. And so the thought of EP or interventional cards or anything like that that required three years of cardiology and then more additional years, that was off the table. There's no way in hell I'm gonna do more than six years. Uh, and even five if I could get away with it. And uh, palm critical care and oncology leapt to the top. And I think the final decision between the two was solely because um, I felt like in oncology, you spend more time with patients and their families outside of the acute setting and so you had a, sort of a stronger relationship for goals of care conversations end of life stuff um, palm critical care I kind of felt like that was thrust upon you and you weren't always well positioned to have people's trust and some of that was made for more difficult conversations and so I guess that's how I find myself in in Hemonk by the time I went into Hemonk I think I had an inkling that I'd be interested in doing policy um, but that kind of formed during my residency no that it sounds like it's quite a complex decision that ends up getting made and it's really just a mix of different pieces both in terms of thinking about the individuals as well as this thought process and also thinking about the patients and their families as well and so as something that I was wondering as a follow-up to that when you're having conversations let's say with someone who's in palm critical care or the oncologist and you're in the middle of choosing and also thinking about the fact that you're maybe going to ask for letters of rec, do you then go and say, okay, these are the two different thoughts I'm having. I might be interested in this, but I see the downside in this field and have a realistic conversation with them. Or do you feel like you have to kind of try yourself, yourself as being continuously interested when you're trying to make these decisions? That's a, that's a really good question. I guess I would say there are definitely people who I talked about the choice. And then there are people within each specialty I talked about that choice, but I don't think they were the same. So for instance, if I would meet somebody in palm critical care and ask them about what their life was like and what it would be like to do it, I don't think I fully revealed to them that I was also contemplating all these other things. Similarly for the oncology people, I don't think I fully revealed that I was thinking about other things as well. Um, but I did have people in my life who I would turn to and say, and a lot of it is your classmates, to be honest, or people a few years ahead of you, you knew, you know, because they were the fourth year TA when I was the first year, that kind of relationship you have with people. Um, I asked them about what they thought about different specialties. Um, so I think that's how I kind of handled it. I, I, I really do think 
you know, I always tell people this, like you need to seek out as many opinions as possible on these issues because one, it's kind of interesting um, to see how people think about these things. And two, every once in a while, somebody will say something you hadn't thought about or hadn't appreciated and it'll give you food for thought. Uh, so I think that's how I, I separated the two. Got it. That's really helpful advice. I think that's definitely something that I'm going to take forward and think about as well, is that there's multiple people who can play different roles. And I think that really leads into the next question of thinking about m mentorship. And so something I wanted to ask you is, what do you think are qualities that make a great mentor? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I had seen you sent me a draft of the questions and I glanced at it and I saw this thing and I, and I was thinking about how to answer it. And then I thought like, actually, before I answered that, I was like, you know, I should take a step back because I feel like one of the challenges is, you know, we talk so much about this issue. I mean, I think people talk about it and people are interested in it. But I guess I feel like the unspoken thing is like mentorship for what? Um, and I think that like the first thing is to get a good grasp on what does somebody want to accomplish in the future and what do you want the mentor to set you up for? And I think they can be different things. I mean, if you want to, if you're a, a, a pre-medical student aspiring to go to medicine, I think what you're looking for is somebody who can give you a project that's kind of doable, tractable, tangible, and has some published or presented product so that you can show people like, hey, I'm serious about this field, which is unfortunately, unfortunately, one of the things that they're looking for these days. The second thing is in an era where, you know, you're all pass fail and you're all no grades on step one, I think ironically, although people celebrate this as a great, um, you know, egalitarian move, I think ironically it just shifts the competition. The competition is going to be on research in an unprecedented way. And so now many internal medicine candidates or surgical candidates, many people in medical school are going to be looking to publish a bunch of papers as a student, something which I never did, um, in order to get the fellowship or residency that they seek. Um, so that might be the purpose of the encounter. Like I'm just trying to build up my CV so I stand a chance at becoming an ENT doctor. Um, so I think that's one thing. And then, but when I think, when I hear people talk about it in my field of hemonc, I think so often it means people want a, a clear path to have a faculty career very similar to the mentor. And I guess I would say that, uh, <laughs> uh, although I've worked with lots of people, I mean, maybe over a hundred or two, maybe even 150 trainees and published papers with, and maybe 200 work together. Um, I don't know if many of them actually aspire to have the same path as like I have. There are a lot of people looking to have the path of a more conventional academic career, which would be an oncology sort of a trialist or a laboratory person. Um, sometimes they also do a project with me just to kind of learn these methods and how to do projects, um, but they have other people in their lives. So I guess the first pre-mentorship question is like, well, what do you want to do? Um, and, and, how, and then who are the people who can get you there? And different people will fulfill different roles. And some people might be just to do a project or learn how to do projects. Some people might be more sort of the, the parts of that particular job. So for instance, if you want to be a GI oncologist who runs clinical trials, you probably need a couple people in your, in your roster who do that and know how to connect you with the appropriate people. But I'll add one more thing, which is I think like, I don't know, I feel like some of the things people aspire for is like setting the sights too low. I, I, I feel like, you know, don't you want to do work that, and as George Sledge put on a prior episode, like that really changes the entire field or profession. And I think a lot of people don't set their sights on that. And I think that's a missed opportunity. Maybe we should set our sights a little higher too. Uh, that's, that's really helpful. I'm just trying to reflect on it in terms of setting your sights higher. I wonder sometimes it can be difficult as a med student, you come in and you're relatively undifferentiated. But I feel like maybe the first point is what you said as well, then maybe find someone who can help you start to differentiate. And then I just wanted to ask you, would you say then 
let's say once you've decided would you keep that same mentor or do you think at that point you can start to just add more people or would you maybe possibly kind of leave that mentor and say okay now I've decided what I want to do let me go find other people who will help me with this specific task and you just keep kind of adding to your roster Uh, that's a good point okay so I guess first being undifferentiated is also like the greatest it's an anxiety provoking thing but it's also the greatest thing because it's like the world is your oyster you have so many possibilities and so I think to seize upon it and to really think like you know well, what do you want to do and and I think to set the sights high because healthcare is such a broken fragmented costly expensive entrenched system there's so much room for like really disruptive change especially now more than ever with GDP you know when you're spending 22% of GDP on healthcare 30% 40% the whole system's going to collapse at some point can't be sustained um, in terms of how to like put people in your in your sort of I don't know Rolodex of people you want to chat with I would say more than anything like when you find somebody who's engaging and thoughtful and clever and answers your questions like latch onto those people there are not many of those people there are a lot of people who give plotting and the same old answers scripted answers things that they heard um, you know they they bore me and so when you find people who are really engaging innovative novel you got to latch onto them even if they're not doing exactly what you want to do because they're always the greatest people to bounce ideas off of and i feel lucky that i've always latched myself on to them very tightly um people who gave a great lecture in class i have a bunch of follow-up questions for people who um you know were consummate clinicians and great teachers and i'm lucky that one i still text to this day adam sifu he knows that he's gonna <laughs> i'm gonna text him some questions about you know all sorts of things from life to did you see this did you read this what do you think um you know you want to seize those people in your life and there's not a lot in well let me put this way not everyone in the academy fits that bill but when you find such a person seize them add them in and and you know keep in touch with them and do you ever look for people who you feel like will actively disagree with you so almost you just know that they play devil's advocate oh my god they're the best people in my life i mean yes i do and um it's so important uh uh, we won't talk about it, but before this, you were telling me some things about something that I'm working on that you thought I could address or do better, okay? That's a devil advocate position. Thank God you told me that, because <laughs> it's going to make my thing stronger. Um, and I definitely do think that's super important. You want people telling you why you shouldn't do radiology, why you shouldn't do palm critical care. You want a few people who are kind of blunt, and they'll say that this specialty, I'm not going to name it, because this podcast gets listened to by a lot of people, but they say the specialty is, a, is not that interesting. It's a dull specialty. They're, they're, they derive most of their income from a procedure that's based on flawed evidence. Uh, it could collapse in a second. A couple of ran- negative randomized trials, especially a collapse. Um, or, you know, people who will say bluntly that, you know, that they love surgery and why they love it, and bluntly why they hate surgery and they never consider it. So I think you want to seek out these people, people with strong points of view, different points of view. Um, maybe you won't agree with everybody, uh, but it'll push your thinking. And I'm always reminded of somebody who I disagree with a lot, probably like 100%, which is Scalia, the Supreme Court clerk, Supreme Court Justice. And my understanding is, and I've listened to a lot of stuff, where Scalia always, you know, Supreme Court Justice gets to hire four law clerks. And these are like the, the, like the star students at Harvard and Yale and Stanford. And they come and they draft the opinion pieces. And Scalia always picked the fourth person to be the counter clerk, somebody who politically was on the left, even the far left, who disagreed with him on every issue. And he picked this person because he said, look, even though you're going to be here and you're not going to like my final point of view, I need you to temper my recommendations, to give me the insight of what I'm missing, to show me my blind spots. And notoriously, there was one opinion he wrote where he did the counter clerk said, you know, if it's okay with you, I'm not going to participate. I really disagree. And that included a lot of language in it that many people found jarring or unnecessarily um, hurtful. 
And, and that could have been something that he could have corrected. So I think, yeah, whether it's writing or thinking or choosing a career, you need uh, those counter voices, at least to moderate your enthusiasm, uh, even if you pursue what you're going to do anyway. Great. That's good. Always keep an eye out for people who disagree with you. And I don't necessarily maybe take the time to have some thought as to whether you're disagreeing with them just because you want to be reactionary or uh. whether you're actually like you disagree with them and that tells you a lot about yourself and what you may want to do. But let me add one more thing because I think you're right. Um, that's an important distinction. Why are you disagreeing with somebody to know it? Um, but sometimes I find people are like, oh, you're not taking some criticism seriously. But what they don't see is that some criticism is wrong. It's orthogonal to the argument. It's not germane. It's not, uh, it's not pertinent. Um, and I do worry sometimes, especially recently on social media, that like it's very difficult for people who aren't very good at thinking about these topics to really see what's orthogonal and not. Um, you know, I don't know how much specifics you want here, but you know, we wrote something about like the risk benefit balance, myocarditis in young people. And somebody wrote, well, in the UK, there's like increased cases in those ages. And the point that we had made in our essay was the UK is exhibiting caution because they have not vaccinated those ages, despite the fact that we have done this so in the United States. And this person said, well, this essay didn't include the fact that cases are rising in those age groups as a result. And I would say, well, actually, the interpretation, I think, is the other way around, which is despite the fact that there are cases in those ages, they're still exhibiting caution, which suggests that our concerns are probably much more valid than you may think. So anyway, so the whole point of this is um, on Twitter, in this monosyllabic way, it's very difficult for a third party to assess who's right or who's wrong. I'm grateful to believe that there are still a few people left on earth who can actually like think about these things and issue a judgment, but not engaging with every erroneous, false, insipid statement is not the same as not engaging with real criticism. And I think that good devil's advocates, they do a good job of really finding the pressure points of the argument. To be honest, as you did this morning, because you found, I think, the, the weak link, which I'm going to strengthen before I put myself out there. <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading more. I was thinking that we could kind of move away from mentorship and kind of think a bit further on into kind of what a medical student might be or eventually end up doing, which I'm also thinking about as well now, which is rotations. And so kind of a, the initial question that I had here was thinking about what are some key principles to follow when you're on your rotations? Uh, that's a good question. I guess, um, uh, uh, <laughs> what's the old saying? Uh, medical students should be seen but not heard. No, you know, these kind of <laughs> terrible sayings. Uh, I think it's, it's, um, it is a test of EQ. I mean, more than IQ, EQ, you know, more the emotional perceptions rather than just raw what you know. Um, but I guess there's two things to say. One is, what if it's all pass-fail? If it's pass-fail, the whole game is different. Isn't in your case, like, a lot of it is pass-fail? Yeah, in our case, it's a lot of pass-fail. And then in other schools, they're pass-fail for preclinicals. And when they hit clinicals, then all of a sudden, grades start to come alive. I see. Then the grades come alive. I guess if it's pass-fail, I hate to say it, but I think what is the incentive structure of a pass-fail third year? Isn't the incentive structure, my mind, would be that you get a lot of highly ambitious people who know they're going to be selected for a selective process very soon. And by making it pass-fail, they see very clearly there's no way they will distinguish themselves, perhaps only by a verbal comment. Um, so they will shift their energies elsewhere towards research and other things, which I think is ironic, which is but what will be the result of that, if, that, that effort. Um, on the other hand, of course, if you have grades, I've always been the first to admit that they are capricious and, 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 and biased in a number of ways. I think 
there are many biases that people will explore. One bias that I think has got to be the case is the introvert bias. An introvert is always going to do poorly because people will always say things like, well, I don't know what they know and I don't know what they don't know because they don't do that much talking. And I think an extrovert has another risk. They run the risk of um, they have to be an extrovert within the bounds of what senior people think is acceptable extroversion for a medical student, which is not the same as a faculty member um, because they want to see some evidence of humility and, 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 and respect, I think. Um, and so they walk a fine line. But I think people who are hitting it out of the park in terms of perceptiveness, they know just how to walk that line of being tossing out answers and banter, but also not going too much, you know, which is an art of itself which ironically is probably the art of like a, uh, of business, you know? <laughs> it's the art of like rising through the ranks in business. Um, but what I think, you know, this is all the distraction from what I think like what the student's goal should actually be, which is like you have a very narrow window to actually try to learn something about real medicine. And everything you've been taught prior uh, is not, in my opinion, real medicine. Uh, you need to learn real medicine. And real medicine is different than physiology and patho pathology. Because the human body, which is very complex, it breaks down often in predictable ways. And the predictable ways it breaks down are disease. And not every bit of the body has the same probability of breakdown, which is why some disease we talk about and other diseases we don't talk about. Just like cancer metastasizes to some sites, but there are other places where it typically doesn't go. Mets to cardiac muscle is a rare place, but mets to brain is common for some, you know, those sorts of principles. So biology is, is complex. Um, what I think the student should learn is two things. Um, if somebody presents with a complaint from chest tightness to headache to fever, how do you evaluate that complaint and think about it and move from the complaint or concern to what you think the probable diagnoses are and how you can manage this person going forward? What are the things you should do for them? When should you sequence tests? And that's a very complex and not, um, um, it's not fully um, definable. I mean, it can't be written into algorithmic code. It's, it's something that still is a little uh, art and science. You know, you should know likelihood ratios and post-test probability and all these kind of principles of evidence-based decision-making, but also know that some of it is beyond the space that evidence-based decision-making has reached in terms of moving from concerns to diagnoses or optimal management, which is a little bit different because sometimes optimal management means you don't always make the diagnosis in the first three months or six months, but you still sequence it in a way that it is really optimal for people. Then I think the next set of things to learn is once you find ailments like you know heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, to know what are the treatments for that. Why are they the treatments? Why do we believe those treatments work? And if the answer is, well, you know, we give ACE inhibitors because they change TGF beta signaling, that's the wrong answer. The right answer is we give them because multiple randomized control trials show survival benefit. So to understand the evidence for the things we do, at least common things for surgeries, for medicines. Um, and then the next third bucket is how do you take care of people who are already well and feel well um, and they come to the doctor seeking to feel better off? Um, how do you deal with screening? How do you deal with preventive medicines? And I think it's easy to say things like cliche things like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. But the tough part is to know, well, is that true? Under all what circumstances is that true? And actually, it's not always true. Sometimes an ounce of cure is worth a pound of prevention. Uh, you know, cures can be better than preventive things. And, as one example, you know, screening for testicle cancer is USPSTF grade D because stage four cancer has such a good prognosis. Finding it early just leads to unnecessary orchiectomy without countervailing benefit. So, I mean, that's part of the principles of screening. So I think the student's goal, which gets forgotten in this whole process of, you know, day-to-day -day drudgery, the student's goal is actually to like, this is your chance to see all of medicine. When you specialize, you're only going to see a part of it. But all of medicine and to learn how people think in different specialties, from ortho to neurosurgery to general medicine to cardiology, to learn how do you work up concerns in that field, what are the treatments, what is the evidence for, 
so I think it's a great opportunity. Uh, sometimes I wish I had it back again, um, but I do do some things that are unconventional, which is every few years I find some doctor and I, I sneak my way to shadow them a little bit. And so like a year or two ago, I shadowed an orthopedic surgeon doing some operations for some paper that I was working on with Audrey Tran that someday we'll publish. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah, so I still think, I'm still very curious about these other fields. Uh, I think that's really helpful is just thinking about, okay, it's sitting there and wondering about how they think. I mean, I guess at some point you can take notes down yourself, but I feel like you could also ask who you're working with questions at time about like why they made that decision or maybe just have a roster list of questions and see what kind of peaks you as you go along. Absolutely. I mean, I think you definitely want to probe people for why they made the decision they did. Although I have found recently that I think people don't have a good rec- they don't really, I don't think, understand always why they choose what they did, and perhaps myself included. I think if you, there's, uh, it would be interesting, but I think a simple regression will do, will show you something. Here's what I think the regression is. Okay. On one axis, you could say the average step one score. The average step one score is not a perfect metric, but it is a metric of selectivity and desire because people with high step one scores want to trade those tickets in for something good, like Chuck E. Cheese, you go get your bouncy ball when you get all these tickets. Okay, so step one score is the y-axis. On the x-axis, or on the, uh, 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 of, of the variables you put into your model, I think you could put in um, um, average income over a year, average controllable hours, and average uncontrollable hours. And I suspect that average income Average controllable hours and average uncontrollable hours will explain 80% of the variability in step one scores. And I think, who was it? Sheriff of Sodium, um, one of the guests of this podcast, uh, he showed me a regression that showed that the salary alone explained 65% of the variability. So why do I say all this? I say all this because I think we have to take, I think we have to acknowledge the reality, which is that a lot of people who choose fields like urology, dermatology, radiology, IR. I mean, these are not fields that I don't think like a three-year-old kid is saying, I want to be a urologist. No, they realize that it has a lot of mostly controllable hours, very low emergencies, and massive reimbursement, and that's why these fields have draws. Um, And I think that explains a bulk of why people choose what they choose, even if independently people will say things like, well, I like the culture and the program, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one set of questions. And the other set of questions to ask him is like, well, why are they doing what they're doing? Why are you doing this? type of surgery why not do a different surgery and I think that's where it gets really interesting mm-hmm. and something that we often may ask in business is thinking about oh, where do you think your field is going and I was wondering if that's a question that you ask people for instance in radiology sometimes with AI it's discussed that okay well how will that change this field like will you be kind of as needed if you become a radiologist or a pathologist and is that something that you should keep in mind as a med student among rotations or is that something that you can kind of just put in the back burner until later and you should just choose it really based on interest in the people yeah that's a great question I think I think you're right to know that where a field is today and where it is in the future are not the same thing and I think a mistake is people choose based on where the field is today and I'll give you one example when I was a student 2005 to 2009 I think there was a huge interest in general radiology. And we had heard stories of the residents who go from residency, just general radiology residency, to finding private practice jobs that paid eye-popping sums, you know, like massive sums of money. And with really good hours and great time off, like 12 weeks of vacation, it it was crazy. And I think that launched a lot of ships in my class because a lot of people, a hugely disproportionate number of people, went into radiology. 
And then what happened was in the ensuing six or seven years, the market really changed. And so the same people I knew who finished, they told me like, shit, it's hard to get a job. Hard to get a job in these metropolitan areas. Where are these 12 weeks? Where is this pay that I'd heard about? It had really kind of changed. Um, maybe some of that is some of these consulting services like Nighthawk. I, I, don't, I actually don't. I didn't follow up. I haven't spent my time looking through why it changed so much. But your point, I think, is valid, which is that, you know, if you choose a field that is, if you choose a field for those reasons, for what you think the job market looks like, that's very volatile. Job markets can change. And just another great example was from like 1990 to 2003, cardiothoracic surgery and interventional cardiology, just like it flipped, you know, cardiothoracic surgeons were, you know, the, the gods of the hospital, you know, that they, they ran the show and they commanded, I think, the largest sums of money and they had tons of procedures. And then comes along an inflatable stent or expandable metal stent and it just crushes their their business and and I think um, there are people I know who you know they shied away from it as a result um, but I guess it just speaks to the fact that if you chose car uh, if you chose CT surgery because you love it I guess you're always gonna love it but don't be surprised if the market changes dramatically I think radonk is another one I, I I don't know for sure but I see people on Twitter complaining that um, the market used to be really good, but now they're training too many radonks and there's too few jobs and they complain about that and uh, it gets heated. I stay out of that. Yeah, <laughs> Twitter can be a difficult land to go, but I'll yeah. probably take a gander as well. I, I, I get enough trouble there, so I don't need any new issues. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need any new issues to get in trouble for. So I was thinking about moving on to questions around research, which is what you spend also a lot of your time doing um and so that's really just the first question here is do you have any advice for picking a research project for someone who's just kind of rather undifferentiated and maybe they're going into a specialty that doesn't necessarily require research in that field for instance i know if you're doing orthopedics or dermatology you might have to just do research in that field and that's something that's known but what about just for you know someone who's starting out yeah that's a great question i guess i would say um yeah, if you're going into those fields, they do a lot of research, in part because it's so competitive. And let's not talk about the quality of the research that comes out as a result. But um, what would somebody who's just undifferentiated, interested in keeping their options open? So I do think, whether we like it or not, in, in a world of pass-fail and no-step-one scores, this is going to be a metric that people evaluate on. So people who are interested in whatever field, who want to keep doors open, they're going to feel compelled to do it. And I, as much as I wish that wasn't the case, and I wish it wasn't the case, and I can think of other ways to get around the problem, but it is the case. Um, so I think that means one of the things you got to do is you got to work with somebody who actually knows how to like get stuff done. And I always say, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever said it publicly, but if the mentor hasn't published 10 papers in the last year, the mentor needs a mentor. And so you need to find a new mentor. <laughs> because, the, I mean, I don't know. People don't know. I mean, it, it's easy to – I look on Twitter and I see all these people arguing about all sorts of things. It's, and they don't understand that, you know, actually getting something to the final mile and publishing it is not so easy. It's tricky. It requires a lot of skill and a lot of navigation. Um, and um, – and so I do think you need somebody who has some track record of knowing how to do that. Then the next thing is you need somebody who, I mean, you need a project that you can actually wrap your mind around. And I always think that, like, when I think the challenge of thinking of projects is, like, I have to think, like, this person, what is their knowledge base and what are they capable of doing? And, and then also I think what is an interesting question and what will be published and what won't be scooped. So scoop means if it's too or if it's too obvious, not if it's interesting. If it's interesting and novel, it won't be scooped. But if it's obvious and novel, so for instance, I will just say, well, what's an obvious question now? 
I guess an obvious question I think right now is what proportion, how much did COVID affect um, mental health and how much did COVID related restrictions affect mental health and how much of our mental health decrement, which I suspect we're having a decrement. I don't know that to be true, but I suspect is attributable to the COVID itself and the restrictions. Okay. I think right now there's probably 50 groups investigating this question. And so if I think if we were to roll up our sleeves and try to investigate it, I suspect we will get scooped in the sense that somebody will beat us to the punch. And what that person means is they're going to publish in New England or JAMA, and then the next person is going to publish in, you know, the Annals of Internal Medicine, and then the next person is published in the BMJ. And then by the time it gets to our paper, it's going to be published in the journal of even my mother won't read. So, you know, so I was like, okay, so that's something I think about. Um, so I think that from, your, from the student's point of view, you got to find somebody who gives you a project you can understand, wrap your mind around, think about. And you know, in like our little team meetings, we have like Timothy, who's a hemonk and attending practically, he does different projects than, you know, Logan, who's a pre-medical student, um, because he has much more technical knowledge of this. So you have to find like, it has to fit what you can understand and be doable and tractable and be finished. Um, but you know, you don't go wrong if you do, and, and then not bullshit. I hate to say this, but like, I don't know. I think many years ago I read some paper and it was about, I don't know, coffee or tea or cancer and it was some just totally wrong conclusion. And I, and it had like 25 authors. And I don't know who these people are, but I said something like, this is a silly paper or maybe I was hard, harsher because I tend to be harsh. But it was like a paper proved nothing and I, I'm pretty sure it proved nothing and it was a spurious correlation, et cetera, et cetera. And then somebody like on it was like mad because this person was like a student and they're like, you know, I work so hard on this paper. And I'm like, oh, shit, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that, you know, this is like your first paper. And, you know, and they're like, I was so proud of it because it's in a good journal. And I was like, well, you know what? You know, I don't know what to say, which is like, yes, it's good that you did a project. Yes, you like learned some skills, but, you know, you contributed to pollution. I mean, it's a pollution. It's, a, it's an information pollution project. And so I think you should try to find a project that's not pollution. And I think that it actually is the mentor's skill set that goes into thinking about, like, what is pollution and not pollution. Um, people who push for causal claims when you don't need to push for causality, they tend to pollute. Uh, there are lots of good descriptive research projects that are undone uh, that can be done. And so anyway, that's a lot of information. But I think those are the factors. I think that's really helpful too. And I also think just someone who's doing research as a student, you also, that's something you're going to have to be talking about from probably the next four years and in residency interviews too. So you, you want to be able to talk about and you want to actually have fun talking about whatever you did. And so, so true. thinking more about students that you've worked with, because you've worked with quite a few medical students, I was wondering, are there any behaviors or qualities that have just stood out to you that just made a good, strong, positive impression? <laughs> That's a good question. I guess, uh, yes, students fall on like a distribution. And then there are students who, um, you know, every once in a while, I mean, distribution on several characteristics. One is like just, uh, just sheer intelligence. So people who always say things that are like, you know, very insightful, clever, novel, surprise, even me who's thought about this problem a long time. And I always get students like that. And I, my mind immediately races to this uh, uh, Robert Kemp, who's some Oxford student who came from the UK, read my book when I'd written the first book. And he came and spent like a month with me. And he always said things that I was like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. That's clever. You know, very clever kid. Okay. So that's like one, you know, distribution of people. And then there are people who like, you know, their cleverness, maybe it's yet to blossom. I don't think everyone's clever on day one. Um, work ethic. There's also distribution. I actually think both ends of the distribution are problematic on the work ethic I issue. <laughs> I <laughs> joke about because you and I both know someone who's a workaholic at a young age. Just like I already see 
I already gonna I want to prescribe this person some under the tongue nitroglycerin for the impending <laughs> MI. That's no, this person is a workaholic. You know who I'm talking about. Let's not name names. I um, do. Uh, there's also people who like you know you give them a project and that's the last time you ever met him. <laughs> and then well, after like a year or two, I recirculate those projects. It's like and an I, absent email left in the inbox. Yeah. <laughs> and I I gave one person such a, a really good project and this person is bamboozed. Um, yeah. So you don't want to be that. I mean, I so I think you want to be something in between. You don't have to be a workaholic. I don't think anyone expects that. Um, and then I think probably from the trainee's point of view, you know, instead of getting like for for every 80% of the time you spend on the project, 20% of the time you should spend reading the literature circ around the project, which will give you better background, um, you know, for these kinds of thoughts. No, that's really helpful. I think it's always good too, because I guess when I hear those distributions, I don't sit there and think, well, you're a person, you're completely stagnant. I mean, you can always, if you read about the literature, you can improve yourself on the distribution of the kind of questions you have, or if it's work ethic, I mean, you can set timers and you can change and maybe you have a baseline, but I think you can yeah. always kind of sit there and think about what metric you want to do better on. I think so too. And I think in terms of like, probably there are some people, probably the introvert, extrovert spectrum is another metric. And I think that some people are introverts, so they don't tell me what they think. But, you know, I love to hear when people think, especially when they disagree or think have like, I'll give one example. There was a meeting, I don't know, maybe like four months ago or three months ago where Jenny, somebody who works with me a lot, you know, she, um, <laughs> I could just tell from the look on her face that she was displeased by what we were talking about. And then she went in and then I was like, you look like you disagree. What do you think? And then she went into like 10 minutes of like why she is not convinced by what we were saying. And I think. You know, some of it was that we had done a poor job of like actually trying to explain what we were doing. So now I saw the holes. So I was like, oh, shoot, we can clarify all these things. But some of it, she was right. <laughs> and she was right. And it made good points. And, you know, some of it you had to live with and some of it you had to address and some we had to make a new graphic. Oh, now I remember the paper specifically. Um, that paper is still under review. Um, it's super important, I think. It's like that's why the Scalia had that counter clerk. Although Jenny's not a counter clerk usually. <laughs> but I also think what's helpful and maybe it's something to demonstrate to mentors that you naturally do is you, you asked her, you said you look displeased or <laughs> oh, you, yeah. you kind of ask people to give a contrary opinion if they have one and open the floor. And I think some people, they just don't, maybe they do have one, but their mentor hasn't necessarily given them the space to do that. Yeah, I guess, I don't know. If people, when people spend a lot of time with me, they... They, <laughs> they usually they the, they they start volunteering more and more. <laughs> uh, but you know who always looks contrary, and I hope he's listening. I know he is, Mark. <laughs> Mark from Imperial College London. He he comes to our meetings. Mark Lithgow, uh, terrific guy, terrific oncologist, and uh, I love the stuff that we're working on. But he's given some good pushback recently, actually quite good, and always. But usually, fifty percent of the time, when I I claim he's looking unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> it's not related to what I was saying. <laughs> I was going to say that I can say that maybe it's just the British resting face and <laughs> I can claim it because of my parents. That's so. right. Yes. You, you're, you're from there. Yeah. So I asked the question around here is let's say you were going to evaluate a med student CV, which as we all know, that's kind of what you do in medical schools. You do things, some of what you're interested in, some of it goes in your CV. And let's say you're looking at their research and how would you weigh those different components of first authorship or just a lot of publications um, or the type of research they do, the journal quality, do you take that into account? That's a great question. So I will separate myself from people who will be doing this work because I know how those people think and I know what I think. Here's what I think. 
I think the fairest way to do it is um, modified lottery. By that I mean I think people are very poor at picking apart who's the best versus 20th best, and most people are excellent, actually. And if you go through the evaluation process, and maybe there's like 10% of things people would like just truly red flags or some, some other something that's very troublesome, okay, those people, you boot them out. And then the rest of the people I would just put in a lottery, then I would just randomly pick. And I, <laughs> and I don't think anyone is happy with my stance on modified lottery. I would do this for like many walks of life from how do you choose medical students? How do you choose residents? How do you choose fellows? How do you um, give out NIH grants? I would do modified lottery for all these things. Or I would do something even better, which is I would randomize programs to modified lottery or their whatever BS way. Um, uh, whatever way they've always done and see if you can me have any metric that shows me that they're picking people better such as future outcomes or whatever or even satisfaction or satisfaction among nurses or faculty or other things like that okay that's what I would do so but I'm I'm an oddball but what do people want I think people do think about these things people are people are people are people and as much as I hear on Twitter that someday you'll be promoted to full professor by a series of good tutorials <laughs> I don't believe that will ever happen. I don't believe that's going to happen until a lot of people are dead, including myself. Uh, so it'll be in the future when society changes. Um, what, do the what do the people who make these decisions do? And I'll be honest, I'm the, I, I just try to steer clear of these decisions because I've already explained my views, which I think it's kind of obsessing about minutiae that don't really matter and they're not really good predictors. Um, and, you know, we've published some papers on this many years ago. And, uh, okay, anyway. So um, what did they look at? I think they do look at pedigree for better or worse, which is the universities people trained at and the medical schools people trained at. I think you'll do well. Uh, they do look at um, step one scores historically. And m some programs, my understanding is, they do set hard cutoffs. They weren't very stringent, but I think for a while Brigham had like 235 for internal medicine. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong if you're listening. Um, but maybe there were some cutoffs that were used for like USMLE, below which they thought people d just generally don't do well in this program. I think these days there's a move to holistic review of applications. But, you know, so many parts of the application can be controlled if you know a lot of people in medicine. Like, you can write a really good medical essay if you give it to, like, seven professors to read because they know what professors like to hear. Um, research, I think people are, um, people, are, uh, people are snobs about. And what are they snobs about? Uh, they care about authorship, first author, first author versus middle author. They care about the journal it appears in. And they care about, I think if they view it as a commentary or a review article versus a real substantive original contribution. I think they care about all these things. And so, you know, year, so, so somebody who publishes three first author nature papers um, in the field, you know, there are such people um, and applies for a Hemonk fellowship. That person has like pretty much like they have a golden ticket. And actually, that person's incentive is to like literally say nothing on interviews. Literally <laughs> be the most, ble you know, because their incentives are different. They can only go down if they say anything kind of interesting or provocative. Actually, ironically, probably for most people, their CVs are so good these days that they can only go down by being interesting in the interview. So their goal is to kind of be quite bland, I think, I which is also see. why I think the interview is not that useful. But yeah. Yeah, I always think that interviews, you're just trying to leave a positive impression and it's probably less about what you say because honestly, in a lot of conversations, I can't really remember every piece of it as well. Yeah, I can't forget a lot of it. You just left the impression, yeah. But no, that was helpful. Um, so I guess I'll leave you with the final word for a medical student. 
but this has been really helpful. Well, thanks for doing it. I'm glad uh, we talked about putting this together. Maybe people will find it of interest. I, sh- I, I, should, I should go get other people's opinions. I should go sit down with our program director and see what they have to say. Don't you think that would be a good use of my time for this further this podcast? Um, I did it a couple years ago with Jeremy Setnar, who is the OHSU Hemong Fellowship Program Director. It would be interesting to talk to maybe fellowship program directors or internal medicine program directors to see what they think. But I guess I would say, you know, I guess I would say to come back to the first point, which is like, what do you want to do? Why would somebody want to work at a university and just publish boring papers or few papers or boring papers? It's an honest question. I look around and I really wonder, why do you want, why are you trying so hard (laughs) to stay and get promoted over a course of like many, many years? for, frankly, wages that are far lower than what you can earn. So that's one thing that I have to, we have to be honest about. Like, you're taking a pay cut to be working at university. And every year that goes on, the pay cut gets bigger, ironically, because the gap is larger, grows with time. Um, the gap is bigger for somebody who's a full professor than it is for an assistant professor. Um, you're taking that pay cut for something. because and, and one possibility is it's for the flexibility in time. Possible. But a lot of people in these other walks of life who are earning better incomes, they also find a way to structure their world in a way that they have great flexibility of time. The only reason I think it's worth taking is if that like what you're doing is so cognitively interesting to you and to society. And and I think you want to, and so, so I think that, that it has to be that. And so if you're doing research in some tiny corner that like no one, literally no one is reading because it's getting no citations and published in journals that literally no one reads, and you know no one reads because you yourself doesn't even read those journals, I think you gotta ask yourself like, why are you spending your time like this? What is, it's like, um. I don't want to say what it's like. I'll skip that part. <laughs> uh, okay. But you, you see, my point is like, you don't want to do mundane, boring work. And there are people who do highly innovative work. And I read their papers and I just think the papers are total shit. Like they're all wrong. Everything about the paper is wrong. The methods are wrong. The conclusion is wrong. But I still give them props for pushing the highly innovative idea. It was highly innovative. You were totally wrong. Not many people even see that you're wrong. But I know, I know you're wrong. I know why you're wrong, but I still give you props because you aimed high. Interested, you at least piqued my interest. You made me read in depth. So I, I, I admire that. Um, and I think that, I don't know, I still think about like, you still have to, I wish you were, we were all accountable to who we were when like five years old or six year old. When a six year old has real dreams, you know? They want to be an astronaut and you know, they want to do all, you know, they want a lot of, they have ambitious dreams, right? Young people. And then as you get older, your dreams become far, far less ambitious, I see. They become so much more plodding and mundane. And, and someone's dream is like to renew some boring NIH grant on a project that they literally tell me they do not like doing. Like people tell me, I don't like doing this project. I don't believe in it. I don't believe in the papers. They're publishing like three a year from like a, you know, from a million dollar NIH grant, which is like, a, it's like what are you even doing with all that money? Um, so I guess my thing is like the takeaway is like you need to decide early on. Are you about, you know, maximally taking care of patients as good as possible? In which case, you know, there's a strong case to be made that like the private practice world, they're doing a lot more than we're doing in academics. Um, Are you about like leveraging technologies and you want to be in venture capital or in in industry or do some hybrid job? You know, that's that's another pursuit. Or do you want to be in the academy? If you want to be in the academy, I think you really have to pick something that you think is truly transformative and find a way to do it that's super clever and original. And, um, And I think you also want to be I don't know, I find myself like, you know, I tried to go zero COVID for hashtag, this is season four, hashtag zero COVID. We haven't talked about it. Good. But yet I still find myself writing some op-eds that are related to COVID. Why? Because I feel like, I don't know, when I read something that I think is just totally off base, 
as somebody in the academy who thinks about these kinds of things, I have some obligation to like comment on these topics, topical public interest topics. But I talk to many of my colleagues and they say it's only a professional liability to talk about, you know, should we give EUA for 12 to 15? And I was like, if you view it as a professional liability, what are you saving the professional capital for? What is going to be the issue that you actually say you want to expend your professional capital? Or you're just going to go oh, your whole career and then die and then that's it, you know? And, and that to me is depressing. And so I guess I would say that if anything, I worry that my actions have not had as much of an impact as even I would like. And if it continues to be the case, I will find something, I think, more fruitful to do. But I think that that's, we should all try to aim higher, not lower. Thank you. Thank you for being part of the reverse plenary session podcast. But those are really inspiring words. And yeah, I really like it. Aim higher. (laughs) Thank you so much, Emma. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.